Well, my next guest is an accomplished businessman and entrepreneur called one of the nation's most influential power brokers by the Globe and Mail, named one of the most powerful business people in Canada, the founder of Kingsdale, Kingdale Advisors, founder and chairman of the Canadian Council of Business Leaders Against Anti-Black Systemic Racism and the Black North Initiative, and the author of his memoir, No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot, and of course, TV Dragon. I mean, I'm just, I, the, the list keeps going on and on and on. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Wes Hall. Good morning, sir. Thank you for joining us on Toronto this weekend. Hey, Maggot, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm hearing you read all those things up, and I'm like, who's that guy? I want to meet him. <laughs> the one and only Wes Hall. The one and the only. One and only. The <laughs> what drives you, Wes? You have your hands in so many projects. I mean, the list, I, I had to cut the list short because, you know, we only have a certain amount of time with you. But what drives you uh, to do what you do? I was having dinner with someone last night and he said, Wes, you got to tell me what time do you go to bed and what time do you get up? Because, <laughs> you know, you've got to, you know, you got to get like two hours sleep and you got to work like, uh, you know, 22 hours. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I'm very efficient. Let's just mm. put it that way. I'm mm-hmm. very, very efficient. And because I, I got this incredible work ethic from my grandmother mm. who raised me in a tin shack in, in with 10 grandkids on a plantation. And that woman got up at four o'clock every morning four o'clock every morning and she make breakfast for us before we go to school and she goes off to the field when it's dark and she comes back home when it's dark and she has to make dinner for all of us mm-hmm. and then put us to bed and then she goes to bed and you know whenever whatever time and she get up the same time every morning so to me that's hard work yeah. okay what i do is just nothing in comparison to what i've grown up seeing my grandmother doing so it's uh I, you know, I feel that I'm emulating, uh, you know, her work ethic, and I'm and I'm happy to do that. You're talking about Miss Julia Vassell, your grandmother, and uh, I mean, she, yeah, you said it. She raised you as well as your cousins. You learned from her. You grew up in Jamaica. Life wasn't easy for you, I Wes. No, it wasn't, man. You know, I listen. I was. Um, I saw object poverty growing up. Mm. Object poverty, like meaning that. You know, my grandmother used to feed us and she had nothing else. And she would make some mint tea that she would grow in the garden Mm -hmm. and she would boil it and she would drink that. And that's what she would go to bed Mm. uh, with. Okay, And uh, and so to me, when I see injustice in our society and when we when I see refugees that we welcome into our country sleeping on the sidewalk, it breaks my heart to see that because I get flashback to when my grandmother was on her own. And having to look after us because nobody would come to her aid to help, mm. you know. And and so when I look at, for example, those refugees, it's kind of like you know me saying, you know, Maggie, come to my house because you're in need. Come to my house, and I left you outside yeah. on the sidewalk, and I said that's that's as far as you're going to be able to go. Yeah. Right. So even though I was very accommodating to you to say come to my house, the way that I treated you once you got to my house suggests that I wasn't as accommodating as as I should have been. And so when I see these things, it just flash back to my days growing up with my grandmother, seeing her struggle, seeing, you know, experiencing that hunger and that struggle. And I go, I can't watch people go through that and do nothing about it. 
I mean, you're speaking about something that continues to still happen. You know, on our show, we try to bring up the the issue of the asylum seekers time and time again, because I feel, Wes, when we don't see this story in the news, we think it's solved. We think, yeah. it, you know, we think, oh, all of those people found homes. But this continues to still be an issue in our country. You know, as you talked about growing up, uh, Wes, you know, in Jamaica and seeing your grandmother work hard, that is a story of many uh, immigrants who come to this country every year from Jamaica or the Caribbean or wherever. Uh, yeah. But what made it so different that when you came, you were 13 years old uh, when you came, uh, or sorry, 16 when you yep. you moved uh, here and, and you got a job on Bay Street. Uh, what made it different that you were able to pull yourself up? Yeah, I wrote an article uh, that was published in the Globe Mail yesterday uh, that's called the, the Compassionate Values That Make Us Canadian Must Remain Steadfast. When I came here, I saw opportunity. I just saw something that I was I just didn't see when I was in Jamaica growing up. And uh, for example, I had to pass an exam to go to high school, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and if you didn't get in because it was a lottery system, get into the high school system, you could you could pass the exam and still don't get in because they only have a hundred spots for a thousand people, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and so when but when I passed, if I passed the exam, my grandmother would now have to pay to send me to high school, and she couldn't afford to do that. Mm -hmm. When I came to Canada. I didn't have to write an exam to get to high school, nor did my dad had to pay. It was a right that I had as a Canadian. And so that was what welcomed me. So I came here on a Friday and Monday I was in high school. It was, I was in high school. Like, you know, I'm like, and I was like, this is, this is the land of milk or honey. <laughs> and, and I go, I can't fail in this country. So that's the attitude that I took with me when I came here. I saw something materially different than I experienced. I experienced extreme poverty in Jamaica. I couldn't get to get into high school because I couldn't afford to. And then I came here and all that stuff was available to me. So nobody's going to stop me from ascending because they go, wait a minute, you're a black dude. Like, you know, I'm like, you know, yeah, they tried but that's not going to stop me. I'm just going to look at that and go, wait a minute. You know what I went through to get to this far? Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that because you call me a name and because you say I look this way, I'm not going to go any further. That was the attitude that drove me when I went on Bay Street in the mailroom. And that attitude drives me to this day. That And I'm encouraging people to say, we're going to have blockers in our path. And I say, just be a running back. If you're, if you're into football, just be a running back, man. And when the blockers are there, you know what you do? You run over them. You run through them. You run around them. You find a way to get to the end zone. And so I've been able to find a way to get to the end zone in spite of the fact that these people kept on knocking me back time and time again. And until that changes, we have to keep fighting. So it's the same for the refugees that just arrived on our, on, on our doorstep. They are going to have a hard time integrate into the Canadian uh, system. And they just have to have that thick skin that this is the land of milk and honey, and I'm going to get my piece of it. 
Do you think it was easier back then, though, Wes, to be able to say, I'm not going to allow anything to stand in my way? I mean, you know, there just seems to be such a societal shift. We were talking earlier on in the show about these culture wars. You know, yeah. The, yeah. we see, uh, you know, Angus Reid polls saying that people are just they are tired uh, yeah. They are frustrated with these conversations about, you know, inequality, about yeah. DNI. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. Was it easier for you to be able to say that, you know, years ago? Has it gotten harder for people to stand their ground and say, I don't care what people say about the color of my skin. I am going to do what I've been called to do. It's materially harder today. Mm. I think if I'd come to Canada, September 27th, 2023, I came here September 27th, 1985. If I had come here September 27th, 2023, I wouldn't reach where I'm at today, no matter how hard I work. <laughs> and here's why I'm telling you that. Because when I came to Canada and along the way, when I get to, got to Bay Street, I got that job over the telephone. Wow. They didn't even know what skin color, nor did they care. They were just looking for a body to fill a role, period, full stop. My second job I got was from a middle-aged, uh, a, a, a 35-year-old white man who was general counsel uh, for a company that says, I like you. I had no experience, zero. I, w I had the school in, but I didn't have any experience doing the job. And he said, I'm going to mentor you. Hmm. And then the next job that I got after that was a middle-aged white woman. And she's like, I'm going to give you a break. I had no experience in that job either. The next job after that was a middle-aged white man, you know, and so on and so forth. Today, people are looking at resumes and what school did you go to? What neighborhood did you come from? They're looking at all these different things to disqualify people from giving them an opportunity. And nobody is willing to take a break on people anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody is. So the breaks that I got along the way, there aren't people willing to put the work in to help people these days, to give them that opportunity. So to even to make the movement of inclusion a bad word, they, they call it the woke movement. Mm -hmm. The woke movement, they put a name to it. And when you hear the name, it, it's, it's, it's a bad thing mm -hmm. because they want it to sound like you being inclusive it's not a good thing because you're excluding people. Being inclusive means that everybody's included. Nobody's excluded. So in my company, I don't sit there and go, I only hire black people. There's all kinds of races in my company. Mm -hmm. There, you know, And if corporate Canada used the same word to say, let's make sure that nobody's excluded. We're not going to have this woke movement and all these problems that we see in society. And by the way, I've created a lot of value to people along the way. All those people that helped me along the way when I integrated myself into the Canadian society and they helped me to integrate. We just did a study that we did at uh, in my company, We Shall Investments. The last three years, $1.1 billion in economic output into this economy, $700 million in GDP contribution. Wow. From 2,000 employees in 2020 to 3,800 employees today, and guess what? 80% of the people that run our portfolio companies are either minorities or women. Hmm. How does that hurt Canada by having me come here September 27, 1985, and now people help me to integrate into, into the society? 
How does it hurt the country with me doing what I'm doing today? Love it. So how is diversity a bad thing? How is helping immigrants a bad thing? How does it hurt Canada when we're welcoming? It makes us better. And so when people put these bad words like woke movement, it's a four-letter word they put to it. We should embrace it because it's a good thing, Mm. not a bad thing. We are talking with Wes Hall, businessman, entrepreneur, author, and TV dragon. You know, Wes, before the break, you were, uh, you know, talking about all these people that really helped you, you know, step up the corporate ladder. You know, I love the saying, lift as you climb. I I run a charity and I think about that every single day uh, in my charitable work is how do I lift people as I continue to climb? Talk to me about Black North Initiative and how you're consciously doing that in your day-to-day work through that company and through that initiative. Listen, you know, there's a, um, I, I believe in this, that when you come from poverty, you become a first responder. Mm. And, uh, and we need to go back into poverty and pull as many people out as we possibly can. Right. You know, that's what first responders do. They go into places mm. that everybody is, is, is trying to flee and they try to save people, even at the, the the risk of their own lives or reputation. And so to me, you know, I have the platform today. I have the financial uh, uh, means today to try to help people and to help as many of them as I possibly can. And so it's not just about writing a check or it's about doing things physically sometimes. So I built the Black North Initiative because I've seen the struggles and the difficulties of talented Black people on Bay Street, in the not-for-profit sector, want to be professors at universities, want to be lawyers in law firms, and they're just not given the opportunities that others gave me. Mm. And it's, and, and it's, it's disheartening to see that. And it's also disheartening to walk into places where you're the only one all the time. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, you experience all kinds of biases. You know, I've walked into, people have said to me when I pull up my car at the Four Seasons to have lunch with my clients, hey, you know, here's my keys, go valet my car for me. Wow. You know, or I'm on the the line in the, at the airport to go into the, um, the the priority line, and before I had my boarding pass to the person, like you're in the wrong line, you should be in the economy line. And uh, jogging through my neighborhood with my wife, and people ask her, "Hey, you know, could I use your personal trainer one day?" Wow. Because I'm always finding my place and, and myself in places where people go, people like you don't aren't here mm. and shouldn't be here. So I go, let's do better. Let's do better. So I formed the Black North Initiative because I've been on Bay Street to have a ton of connections and relationships with with executives and CEOs. And I just call them up and say, let's do better. Let's make our organization inclusive. Let's look at any systemic barriers that exist in our businesses and let's just remove them. And then you know what I'm hearing from people today? They're like, man, I just find these Black talented people. Where were they before? Well, they, they were always here. They were always here. They were there. You were just overlooking them. Yeah. In fact, you were looking around them. You were so shoulder surfing. Um, you, know, you know what sh- shoulder surfing is? You ever been at a party 
and you're talking to somebody and then they're looking for somebody more important yes. to talk to. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they looking over, looking over and then they go, okay, man, good to talk to you. And then they got to the next more important person. Mm. We shoulder surf in companies too. We're not going to Tyrone. No, I don't know about, you know, Tyrone is like, and then we look for somebody else and all of a sudden we stop shoulder surfing and then we're seeing the person for the value that they can bring to our businesses. So to me, that is my contribution to Canada. That is my contribution to this country that helped me so much for me to give back by doing something that is going to make this country better. And that's what I feel that Black North has done. It's not just about helping successful Black people get on boards and in C-suites. It's about making sure that the healthcare system is more inclusive. It's making sure that the education system is more inclusive. Making sure that when we walk down the street, that we are not treated a certain way when we walk into a store or when we go to shop or when we go places with our families that we are treated just like everybody else mm. because there's nothing that separates us, nothing, not even the color that separates us, right? You know, I remember when I started Kingsdale and for years I'm, I'm working on these files because back in the day it was all conference calls, right? You don't see people. It's all conference calls. We didn't have Zoom and all these things. And I would, you know, I know if you if you meet me or you, you listen closely, you hear that Jamaican accent, but at the end of the day, I would be having these meetings and everybody, they just loved the advice that I would give. And I remember once I took this plane and I went to see a client and I walk into the, the, the office and they're like, where is Wes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they didn't expect yep. to see a black dude, right? Now, why should they be surprised that I was black? Why? And because in their minds, if you're gonna, if we're gonna view you in such high esteem, you gotta be one of us. Mm. You gotta look like me. And 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 so that myth has been busted every single day today. And so, how many times have you walked into a room and you say something and you sound articulate, and somebody said, "Wow, you sound so intelligent," but yet your resume suggests that you were you were a Harvard grad. But yet somebody was surprised that you were articulate. And because what they're saying is, I didn't know you were black. Yeah. And so are in spite of the fact that you're black, you're articulate. And, and so we want to get those caveats removed from everybody. Oh, you're a woman. Oh, you're gay. Oh, you're, you know, whatever. We, let's get all the different things, labels that we put on people to make them other than. And if we do that, we're going to explore the beauty that cultures and people have to offer the, to this great country of ours. And, and we're going to experience the, the, the beautiful mosaic that we have and embrace it once we take those labels away. So well said, Wes. I have so many questions. Wanted to get your thoughts, you know, as the world has been processing you know, I always say we have been crying that the house has been on fire and finally, you know, the house has been burning down and people look over and say, oh, there was a fire. Like literally, that's what happened in 2020 is that the world woke up to something that black people have been screaming and shouting about for so long when we talk about systemic racism. 
How did you process that time as, you know, we all watched the killing of George Floyd, you know, the, the, the scenario with Breonna Taylor? I mean, the list can go on and on and on. As, as a black businessman, how are you processing that in 2020? Well, listen, we've seen this movie before, first mm-hmm. of all, right? Back in the 60s and early 70s, when, uh, you know, all Martin Luther King Jr. and all those folks were beaten and put into, into jail, the rest of the United States and the world looked and said, this is horrible. This is bad. We got to do something about it. And then they started a movement to equality and change in things. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, things just revert back to how they were before. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the 90s. And then we saw Rodney King and people said we can't people can't treat other people like that this is this is brutality this is bad we got to do something about it then you see that change and then it went back to how it was before and then in 2020 came and then we saw that move that that we can't let people can't be treated like this and we saw the change every 30 years there's this window of opportunity where something bad happens and people go we can't have other people be treated like this but are we really saying that we just don't want people to be, we don't want to see it? Or are we saying we're going to create opportunities to, for, so people are never treated like this again? I'll give you an example. You know, do you think that if somebody knows that I'm West Hall, would it be the police or would it be just some other person out there? And they know that I'm a very influential business person and I'm Black that they're going to treat me like that. Mm. They're going to think twice. Why? Because I have influence and money. Mm. And as a result of my influence and money, they're going to go, that could hurt me. So I'm never going to do that to him. So if we put people in positions where people respect their achievement, and there's enough people in those uh, things, people will think twice about discriminating against those people. Because as a group, they have power and influence. And so because we lack, as a group, power and influence, people believe that they can treat you however they want to treat you because you don't have anyone looking out for you and you have no money. And so I go, if we now look at ourselves and go, as a society, why are we doing this to certain people? Look at the indigenous community in this country. 48% of the women in the federal prison system or indigenous women. 32% of the entire prison population in the federal system are indigenous women, the indigenous people. Two days ago it was reported that this man who threw a wrench out of his car and hit an indigenous woman in Thunder Bay that killed her and he got, uh, he got sent away for second degree murder after three years was paroled. Okay, And uh, Paul Bernardo, which was the most notorious killer in Canadian history, was quietly moved into a minimum security prison. But yet the Black people and Indigenous people are spending years incarcerated, in some cases, for having a joint or for doing something, you know, trivial. And they get time added into under sentences in prison. That is not just. 
And these are stats that are held or that are available publicly. So if we look at those things, we're going to go, there's a systemic problem here. And there's the, there are the privileged and then there are the underprivileged. And how do we do, what do we do to bridge that gap? And so when we call these things out, we're not saying it to embarrass anybody. We're saying it because they're factual. And anyone want to dispute the information, go ahead and dispute it. Then show me evidence otherwise. Mm -hmm. And ask yourself, what am I doing to correct the problem? To correct the problem. And so we can't have a society where certain people are doing, are just treated poorly for absolutely no reason other than who they are. Other than who they, who they are. So when I saw George Floyd's murder, I saw myself mm. on a concrete with somebody's knee on my neck. And there's a psychological term for that. It's called linked fate. Mm. When you see something happen to someone in your national group, your ethnicity, it is as if it's happening to you. And so when we saw Russia bombing Ukraine and you're Ukrainian in Canada, you're not going, oh, no, it's not a problem. You're not saying, I'm glad I'm in Canada. You're, you're feeling compassion for your fellow citizens and you want to do something about it. That's what happens when black people see other black people getting murdered. It hurts us to the core and we want to do something about it. And those of us that have a little bit of influence use that influence to do something, right? And so we can't wait for every 30 years for this window to open. And in between that period of time, we suffer. We have to keep the conversation going. So even though other people may move on, we cannot move on because our kids are going to be dealing with it. Yeah. And so to me, I'm not changing the way that I'm talking about these things. I'm not changing who I am because I don't want my kids to go through what I went through and work as hard as I did. I spent a lot of money educating them to make them feel as if they're not other than anybody else, that they're just like or even better in certain circumstances. And I want them to be treated that way when they get into society. And so others may move on because they go, well, we help the Black people. But as Black folks, especially Black folks in influence, we can't move on. Yeah. We can't move on. And I think we got to keep on pulling. And I think, Wes, the question always is, why can't you as Black people, why can't you as members of, you know, BIPOC, whatever, move on from this? And it's because it continues to happen, because we continue to hear of systemic acts of racism. We see studies come out from the police saying, yes, that disproportionately that they, they focus on black and brown people more than any other uh, group in our society. We continue to see the injustice happen again. You know, I, I'm 44 years old. This conversation really, I mean, I remember, um, you know, what happened uh, in LA, but, but really, I mean, Ju George Floyd has really been the first time that I can remember where there has been a conscious conversation 
about race. And so do you have hope? Because I think if you were to ask, you know, I ask my friends and and it depends on the day. And some people think, no, they've kind of given up hope on this conversation moving forward on there being uh, evolution in when it comes to equality in our society. Do you have hope from, you know, the tables that you sit at, the decision making tables, the the places that you get to enter into that not all of us get to enter into as a representative of our community? Do you have hope that people are hearing, the decision makers are hearing and they are changing their perspectives? So we have uh, 500 companies that signed a Black North pledge to say we're going to be inclusive, not only on our boards and our C-suite, but in our businesses and our supply chain in, you know, who we donate money to, who we provide loans to, from banks that, that signed it, to insurance companies, to energy companies, to law firms, every single sector is a part of that. And I can tell you, we have some very intentional people mm. doing some amazing things to change this conversation. You know, what you got one of the things that I learned when I saw all the different movements, for example, the NAACP in the US was formed to help black folks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, but it does a certain things to deal with civil rights and so on. And then, you know, they, they, they have that organization. We don't really have an organization here that monitors things relating to our community mm-hmm. that can do it on a, on a, on a national scale and influential. We haven't had that. And if I do, I'm, if there is one, I apologize that I don't, I don't know about it. So what I, when I started the Black North Initiative, I said, in order for us to build something sustainable, it can't be just Black people doing it. It can't be just run by Black people. It has to include every aspect of society as part of it. And so the corporate community has to be a part of it. The philanthropic community has to be a part of it. The education community has to be a part of it. And so it's not just saying, okay, we're going to set up a black company, a black organization run by black people and deal with black issues. Right. We're going to set up an organization that is going to deal with black issues, but includes everyone. Yeah. Because it's all our problem to make sure that we have an inclusive society. And when we're successful in dealing with that, we're going to use that playbook to deal with other underserved communities as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so I am very, very confident, I can tell you, because I'm seeing the numbers and I'm seeing the results. And I hear people call me all the time and say, Wes, guess what happened? Is that we have seen a sea change in this country. Maybe people haven't seen it individually but we've seen a sea change in this country since 2020 to today. But there's also those who want to, who are saying we're progressing too quickly hmm. and we should slow the train down. It's going too fast. And I'm sitting there going, Black people have been dealing with uh, racism for 400 years on this mm-hmm. continent. Mm-hmm. And yet we make a little bit of progress in a couple of years and people are saying we're moving too fast. Right. You know, so we're not, again, if we're intentional about it and we have allies that are also intentional, which we do, of course, we're going to see change and we're going to see sea change. My kids will not deal with the stuff that I dealt with. I can tell you this today. Yeah. No, nor will your children. Yeah. Because there's people like us that has a platform. And if we use the platform the right way, we're going to see the changes that we need to see. 
in society. Well, thank you, Wes, for using your platform so well. And uh, and the Black North Initiative is just one of the many things that you have done for the community and continuing this conversation three years in. And I know that you will not stop having that conversation. Thank you for your time and being so generous with it this morning. And thank you for being on Toronto this weekend. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.